I'm trying to tell my kids, by the way, that there, once upon a time, there was in America a phone number you could call just to hear what time it was. And they don't believe me it's true. Wait, what? Stephanie is as shocked as they are. <laughs> this is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by two more hosts, Tablet, Editor-at-Large, Liel Leibowitz. Shalom to all. And Tablet Deputy Editor, Stephanie Butnick. Hello. I feel like I should say, let's get ready to rumble. We're rumbling tonight, right? We're rumbling. Our Jew of the Week this week is Michael Oren, former Israeli ambassador to the United States and former member of the Knesset. Our Gentile of the Week is PJ O'Rourke, the terrific American humorist who's written for Rolling Stone and Vanity Fair and lots of other places. I actually think that we should set PJ O'Rourke loose on making peace in the Middle East and see how funny Michael Oren can be. That's my plan for, for the future careers of our guests. Do you think that would work? Right, because really the, the Middle East requires more, you know, more drawl <laughs> humor. That's just what we need in the neighborhood. Exactly. Uh, so here I am in my basement, and Stephanie, you're in your closet. Yep. And Leo, you're in a proper room. You do this from your study, right? I'm right by my Peloton. So at peace <laughs> in the world. By the way, I was just talking to someone who doesn't want their Peloton to be in the background of their Zooms. Like it's just too much information for like their various coworkers. <laughs> There's no greater point of pride for me. <laughs> And you've been getting really into it, right? You've done like 8 million miles in quarantine. I am more into it than I think any person has been into any. I'm like John Calvin into Christianity into it. Like I'm ready to like start a new religion here. It's amazing. Like is, like is Ronald McDonald into fries? That's how into it you are? That's how into it I am. He's loving it. What's up with you two? Well, I'm just wondering like what the rules are post Labor Day since like nothing really is changing. And like there was no real like transition from spring to summer. It's all just been like pandemic season. So I'm like, are we still allowed to wear white pants? Like, what's the situation? <laughs> so it's really funny that that you should ask that because th this has been primarily on my mind. So our kids are going back to school tomorrow and we had a training session in person. God bless Heschel. Great school. So proud of them. They did amazing work. And yet they gave this town hall meeting, which of course I wasn't on because, you know, I'm, I'm negligent and, and barely an adult. Are you like class mom? I was class mom last year. No more. I was not asked to come back. But like, he, here are the instructions. I'm, I'm going to share a little bit of what you have to do. So in the morning, you wake up. First thing you do, you have to take your kid's temperature. And then you yep. have to feed it into an app. Now, obviously, everyone's going to write 97.3 or whatever. And so then you get to school. And then there's a line on which you stand to get your actual temperature taken and then there's like another line Wait, and is another that so that app. You can tell which parents are lying or in case your temperature changes in those like 10 minutes. Whatever offends you more. And then there's another uh, another app that you have to order all the food in advance. And then there's a third app through which you have to like email the teachers to demand that they bring the kid down because like drop like pickup is individual per kid. And here's the thing I was thinking, like, I get it. They want to be so careful and I'm so happy that they're putting so much thought into it. And it's amazing. But the thing that went through my head is, you know what this is going to be like? This is exactly TSA post 9-11. Like some dude tried to bring down a plane with like his shoes and a bottle of water. You all have to take off shoes and no more water on planes. Like 38 years from now, they'll be like, uh, did you check your kid temperature and did you feed it into the app? I'll be like, wait, wait, why are we doing this? Like, this is like a thing from 30 years ago. We're never going back. 
It is it is one of those things about security that no one ever says like, okay, let's loosen up now. That's no one right. ever, we're done. No, you people don't go wind, backwards. You people wind tighter, but they never unwind. And it's right. it's one of the things about human. I mean, we had this discussion at my synagogue when we were talking about security and we made some smart security choices that I thought were moderate and sane. But I did used to make the point, like no one ever says, okay, it's, it's been what, six right. years now with no shooting. Let's lighten up. Never. It's, it's always- like that sign, that workplace safety sign. It's been like X amount of days since the last incident. Exactly. You, no one ever puts up that sign and says, okay, now we can chill. Anxiety runs in one direction only. If school is now like TSA, if life is now like TSA, does that mean there's going to be the like buy-in for $500 a year, you get the TSA pre, which means you get to like re- go around this line to go to school? Like that's going to happen. These stratified classes 100 percent. There'll be like Heschel pre by like November in which you just go <laughs> get to go to class without any of this bullshit. And, and Heschel Ultra will be you get to oh learn my God. from home on Zoom. So the difference like for if you have children post Labor Day is like you're, you're now dealing with schooling basically. For those of us who have children, post Labor Day means, oh my God, they get out of the house again. Like- it means freedom. Um, no, the big news here in New Haven is that one of our neighbors is putting her house up for sale. And we live, as readers of my magazine articles know, on the best street in America, because I once wrote a piece about the best, I think it was called It's a Wonderful Block, about my street. And it is the best street in America. And since we moved here 15 years ago, we've had the same neighbors on either side. And one of them now says that she's going to list her house soon. And so I just wanted to take this moment to say that if anyone wants to come live next door to me, um, drop me a line. I'll hook you up. I think it'd be amazing. Like this, there's precedent, of course, in that Gavrielle and Livia Savitt Woods, who were listeners of the show, were moving to Connecticut for her to take a one-year job. And I found them an apartment on my street. And we recorded an episode there. So it's it, not right. like, it, there's no such thing as a free apartment in New Haven. You're going to have to like, you know... He made us a, I think there was a cake involved. We ate someone's birthday cake there. It was not our birthday. I think it was one of their birthdays. The other had made the cake. Had we made came a over cake. The next day and eat the cake. That's right. We got served cake and got to use their living room as our remote and studio. We ate it too. Because exactly. I think for any one listener though to have that house is is like a bit too much. Here's what I think we should do. I think we should do. Is a it fundraiser. a collab house? Oh, like it a is a clubhouse. House. <laughs> it is the unorthodox clubhouse that if every listener, I don't know, how will this work? Price of the house divided by how many listeners want to chip in, and there we have it. How about this? Like, let's throw the house. We're doing this fundraiser now. Let's throw the house in somehow. I don't know how we do that, but I feel like someone should win the house. Let's throw the house that we don't own as a gift (laughs) to our listeners. (laughs) So basically, if we get to a thousand donors, which is the goal, one of the thousand donors gets to live next door to me. I haven't figured out how yet who's going to pay for it, but basically. An $18 contribution to Unorthodox plus $625,000 gets you the honor of Liel, living next to Mark Oppenheimer. Liel, I, I love talking to New Yorkers. $625,000 will get you three houses next door to me, give or take. That gets you three <laughs> houses next to Mark <laughs> Stephanie, thank you for bringing up the fundraiser. I will just say quickly that this year, we're not going for a certain amount of money. We're just going for the love. We don't care how much you give. Just give something. Give us some love. We want to get to 1,000 donors. We were at about 750 last year. Please go to bit.ly slash unorthodox 2020 fundraiser. That's bit.ly slash unorthodox 2020 fundraiser. And give something, whether it's $1.80, 18, 180, 180,000 would be fine. And when you give any amount you will get entered into a lottery for a Zoom hangout with your favorite host. So you get to choose who your favorite host is, which lottery you want to be in, and all the people who choose me, one of you gets picked to hang with me for an hour one day on Zoom, and we'll like 
we'll have a we'll have a pajama party basically on Zoom, and it'll be great. And those of you who choose Stephanie, you get entered in the lottery to hang out with her. And I guess you know some people will choose Liel and have to hang out with him. Some people might. <laughs> I feel like there'll be different themes. Like a, there's one will be like a coffee clutch, right? Like Liel's will be like a whiskey, a whiskey something. T- yes, yes. And no one has go. to do this, but those are just going to be the general vibes. What will yours be, Stephanie? Have you, are you thinking about? I it? mean, with my new tie dye background, I kind of want it to be like a virtual tie dye class, but I think that's too much. I maybe maybe we'll do some beading. I've gotten really into beading this summer. I be, I've been beating mask chains for uh, people. So beading. We'll I'm also very into beading. Must <laughs> Mine will be corduroy themed though I'm not sure what that will mean exactly. <laughs> but <laughs> Anyway, please enter one of those three lotteries by giving some amount. Again, please give something. Go there right now. That's the cost of admission. Even if it's just a dollar, two dollars, three dollars, we just want to know who will stand up and be counted. Please go to bit.ly slash unorthodox2020 fundraiser and give us something. And we thank you for being part of the J Crew. I also like that we can't do anything nice without making it a competition between the three of us. If we're of like course. the worst siblings ever. <laughs> okay, but who do you like more? There could only be one. Validate us constantly, please. Yes, please. We often conclude with a bit of hilarity from Israel, but I think this week we should begin with a bit of hilarity from Israel. And I want to turn to our Israel correspondent, Liel Benzion Yehoshua Leibowitz. Wait, what Yochanan did, what did Shlomo Leibowitz? What did they choose as your last as your middle name when we ran that contest? Shlomo. <laughs> this this week, the great state of Israel delivered not one, uh, not two, but three incredible. Stories. Uh, here's the first. The first is that uh, earlier last week, people walking around Tel Aviv were surprised when a drone suddenly dropped dozens of packets of weed from the sky, like manna from heaven, <laughs> but with drugs. This was a uh, publicity stunt by a new weed delivery service, uh, mind you, a substance that is not legal in Israel, called uh, the green drone, uh, you get it, it's a drone and it's green, it's very startup nation. But here's where the hilarity ensues, because, you know, we, we all hold stoners in such high regard. These particular stoners, turns out, had a little bit trouble calculating exactly where the drop-off would take point. They forgot that when you have a drone, there's wind. And so instead of dropping it off in Rabin Square, which is where they hope to drop it off, which is a cool area, lots of cafes and restaurants around where cool young people hang, they dropped it off about like half a mile down the road in this like totally drab, gray industrial area where just like you know, 65-year-old men named Shlomo rush on their way to work, which is like the equivalent of wanting to drop something off by Stephanie's house in the West Village and then dropping it (laughs) off by my house on the Upper West Side. Be like, maze weed. Okay, it's good. So it was like a real gorilla campaign because no one saw it. Very gorilla. (laughs) Totally gorilla. So, okay, is is the delivery service by drone? Yes. In general? It's like a pot delivery by drone. Uh, there is app on your phone and the drone come and it drop the weed. That is incredibly right? efficient. <laughs> I'm that, like, now, now that, do this, but like with matzo balls. 
It's raining matzo balls. Yeah, do and that so, with the food or things so that actually COVID want. friendly. All right, so what else is going to Israel? I mean, that, that amazingly, that's not the best story from the Jewish homeland this week. The second story, which, which I think is probably one of the greatest stories we have ever reported. Our faithful listeners will remember that some years ago, we reported a story out of Israel in which one of the Israeli ministers wanted to perhaps take care of all the uh, stray cats uh, of, of whom there are many in Israel, maybe give the final solution to, to these animals. We refer to it on the show as the Meowschwitz. Uh, but this week, Meowschwitz no more, because when 30 uh, feral cats found their way into the Knesset, Israel's parliament, the Knesset decided to give them, ready for this, this is the actual headline from the largest newspaper in Israel. Cats of Knesset get parliamentary immunity. <laughs> uh, and, and I want to read you a bit of the story because this is so, so, so great. The members of the Knesset uh, were pretty, uh, you know, appalled by the fact that like stray animals walked into the nation's parliament. But Knesset director Sami Baklash, which is, sounds to me like completely made-up name, because why do you have a parliament run by a guy named Sammy Backlash? Uh, <laughs> he, he said, no, um, the cats are, and I quote, an important link in the ecological balance of the facility. <laughs> so great, because like, it's like, look, you have 120 douchebags. You need at least 30 cats to make the whole thing work. And so they took the cats. Uh, they gave all the cats like their shots and uh, medical checkups and everything. They had the cats see a vet. And then they returned the cats to the Knesset, where they now live full-time. So they went from Auschwitz to finding a safe haven in the Jewish state. It's basically all of Jewish history writ small. Are they allowed to vote in Israel's 17,000 yearly elections is the real question. They now have their own party. Oh, great. It's the fourth largest party in Israel at the moment. It's called They're the Democratic Party. <laughs> it's good. They do not do coalitions. No, no, they don't. Cats every do. cat for himself out there. And the final story that I will report out of Israel, which is more out of, you know, Baltimore, by way of Israel, is that Dean Kremer has just become the first ever Israeli, not only to reach the majors in Major League Baseball, he debuted last Sunday as the starting pitcher against the Yankees, and as a, as a service, a public service announcement to listeners of this show, Yankees suck. And of course, Dean Kramer defeated the Yankees. And when, in the post-game uh, press conference, he was asked by ESPN to say how he felt, you know, after his first game, he represented and spoke for about a minute and a half in beautiful, beautiful Hebrew to his family in Israel. What do you say to your family back home that was watching today, back in Israel? I am happy that I was able to get a good day today, Rock on brother. So, okay, we've talked about hockey, field hockey, floor hockey, is baseball Israeli, Leo? Like, what's the what's the what's the scene there? As the second baseman of the third greatest softball team in Israeli history, <laughs> the, the third greatest, the third greatest and third greatest, because that's exactly when I played uh, the Herzliya Hawks. Let me tell you, fly Hawks, fly. It's not. Uh, we're, we're we're not great. We're not the best. <laughs> we try.
Michael Oren was Israel's ambassador to the United States from 2009 to 2013. He was a member of the Knesset for the Kulanu Party. He was a frequent guest on late night shows and Sunday morning shows. I used to see this guy on TV all the time. But more important for our purposes, he is a fiction writer and he has a new book out. It's a book of short stories, The Night Archer and other stories. It will be out in November. And our own Liel Leibowitz had a meaty, interesting conversation with him recently. It gives me tremendous, tremendous pleasure to welcome one of my favorite commentators and thinkers and doers in the field of Israeli politics, Israeli-American relations. He was a member of Knesset. He was an Israeli ambassador to the United States. He was a deputy minister. He is an incredible historian who wrote a lot of very serious, best-selling, gripping books. But now, for the first time, I welcome him as a writer of a brand new and fabulous collection of short stories. Hello, Michael Oren. Wow. And greetings like that you don't get in Knesset. I'll tell you that, Leo. Boy. <laughs> Thank you. Where were you when I needed you? Listen, I read this new collection and I absolutely loved it. But as I was reading it, I kind of couldn't help but thinking to myself, are we seeing the sort of liberated Michael Oren. Are we seeing the man who, as ambassador, as member of Knesset, as diplomat, as historian, had to kind of be sort of very reserved and diplomatic in his demeanor, and now all of a sudden could let all of his creative artistic urges roam free? You got it. Being an ambassador was not that much different than being in the military. Uh, you know, it's a different uniform. You wear a tie and a jacket, right? Or even being in Knesset, it's also being in the military. You, you're, you're t in some levels, you're, you're taking orders. You're not yourself. You're a persona. You're representing a government. Uh, you're representing a party, a coalition. But throughout it all, every morning, I got up quite early and connected with the real me. It was very important. It was very therapeutic for me. But these stories and writing fiction has always been me since I was a, since I was a kid. I started off as a fiction writer. So, so these stories were written as you were serving, as you were in duty. This is your therapy, basically? <laughs> Among other things. Uh, each story expresses something very deep. But also, I want to be able to say something in each story, not just entertain. And, and I love the discipline of the short stories. Short stories are, you know, is the ultimate sort of the haiku of fiction. Because you have basically two or three pages to tell an entire story to create characters and to and to wrap it up and keep your your reader interested. So tremendous discipline involved in this, and it, and it was for me, yes, very therapeutic. It still is. I still get up every morning, including this morning, to write. I absolutely love this. I mean, I, I wonder if there's any way to make it mandatory for all our politicians to engage in this, because one thing that really kind of struck me about this particular book, really the, the greatest pleasure that you took was sort of trying to imagine yourself or interject yourself into the psyche of different characters, including at some points, but not limited to, God and the Devil, a ghost, and a character that sounded and felt a lot like the late, great Elie Wiesel. So t tell me about this exercise of gleefully imagining yourself in other people's skins. It's called freedom. <laughs> freedom is the essence of writing. You know, unfortunately, we're living during a period where, where there are efforts to constrain what writers can write about and what they can't write about. I wouldn't be surprised if, if some of these stories come up for a lot of criticism because I write about people from different backgrounds, different races, different religions, different sexual orientations, as you know. To put yourself in the position of, of two very elderly lesbian lovers walking on a beach is <laughs> it, a far cry removed from talking about, you know, the Iran nuclear program. But it's freedom. 
its release. And, you know, this is a book that comes out of a new Jewish imprint called Wicked Son and edited by, by Adam Bellow, uh, you know, son of Saul. And I, I think freedom is inherently Jewish. I think it's, it's, it's something deeply ingrained in us. We have a, a holiday that's, that's dedicated to freedom. And yet freedom in the Jewish tradition comes with all sorts of constraints. It's about discipline as well. There actually is no true freedom without the constraints. In that holiday where we celebrate freedom, boy, we have a lot of constraints and what we can eat and what we can't eat, right. as you know. But that's it. And I can only tell you that when I sit down and write, the feeling of freedom is delirious, it's ecstatic. When I finish writing, I don't even remember writing because it's, it's almost trance-like. It's like an out-of-body experience. Very much. I love this dichotomy between freedom and constraints that you speak of because it, it seems to me that this is sort of like an apt description for your own growth and career as a writer because I assume that a lot of these characters, a lot of these nuances, a lot of the wonderful passages in the book that really dig down deep into the psyche of a person, as you said, that is so unlike you and your own experiences, I imagine that came from years of having to sit there and become a good, trained observer of other people's behaviors, personalities, whims, desires, right? I mean, this is basically a lot of what you do as a diplomat. But I think as an ambassador, being a writer was very helpful to me in helping to understand human nature, to, to help me to communicate. You know, the same thing is true in politics. I think the distinction between the two is sometimes artificial. And there have been statesmen in history, I think of Archibald MacLeish or, or Václav Havel, who come from a writing tradition and a deep writing tradition and were able to harness that sensibility to be effective statesmen and politicians. Was there a story in this collection that you started and then felt, uh-oh, I am in very deep uncharted waters? I don't go to these stories. They come to me. It's almost like a feeling, I, I, I say this guardedly, being impregnated by an inspiration. It comes to me, and my first reaction almost invariably is, oh no, I can't do that, that's too out of the box. Whether it's a story about four women meeting who went to a Jewish summer camp 25 years before and had a deeply strange and spiritual experience in the woods, and, and then trying to recapture that. Whether it's a man who discovers that his father is carrying a bullet in his hip that he got on, on Normandy Beach <laughs> 80 years before and how that affects his marriage. Or whether it's putting yourself in the, in the person of a homeless woman riding around the United States with her daughter in a car. So when those ideas first occur to me, my initial reaction is always be, well, how am I going to know what it feels like to be a homeless woman riding around the United States, you know, frightened uh, with a daughter in the back of a car? And there's that moment of abject terror when you sit in front of the empty screen and you have to begin to type the first words. I talked about being a, a, a spiritual experience, and, and I think with much about spirituality, you have to have a little bit of faith. And I've come to have faith in the inspiration, I don't know about myself, but certainly the inspiration, that it will reveal itself to me over the course of the pages. I often liken writing to building a suspension bridge. You know, think of the Verrazano Narrows Bridge. You start the bridge at both ends, but you're not quite sure how they're going to meet up in the middle. You may know how a story begins, you may know how a story ends, but you don't know what happens in the middle. And that spiritual, I don't want to mix the metaphor here, but as the bridge beater, you've got to believe that the bridge is going to come together at some point. 
And and at some point, did you find yourself missing the quarry that you had vastly as a historian? You know, because when you wrote about the Six Day War, about which you wrote an excellent book, or when you wrote about Israeli-American relations, it was, you know, I, I presume the first thing you did as a historian is sort of go out there and review the documents, the records, uh, interview some of the players, and you had something to start with. And here, as you said, it's a completely blank screen. You could think of anything. Is there is there one process that you enjoy more than the other, or did one process teach you something about the other? The distinction between history writing and, and say, fiction writing is often a false dichotomy, because when you write history, you want to capture the drama, you want to capture the personalities. The greatest compliment I always got as a historian is, was that my, my history books read like novels. <laughs> I loved hearing that, you know. Sometimes in writing about stories, particularly stories set in history, I have a story about a conquistador, I have a story about a, a medieval sultan in, in, in the Ottoman Empire. I have stories about World War II flying fortress pilots. I have to learn. I have to learn about them. I, um, not in this collection, but in the collection I'm working on now, I have a story about the head of an armorer's guild in 14th century Freiburg. So in order to write this story, I had to learn how iron was smelted and steel was smithed in the 14th century, how armor was made, how guilds were organized, I have actually never been to Freiburg, but believe me, I know every inch of Freiburg now, and I even know Freiburg of the 14th century. And these are tools I developed as an historian. This all sounds fascinating and richly rewarding, but we live in such tumultuous times. Is there a moment in which you're tempted to say, I'm putting the tie back on, putting the jacket back on, I want back into fray, I want back into politics, I want back into diplomacy, I want back into this kind of that world? <laughs> pretty much every damn day. <laughs> pretty much every damn day. But it's not just about being in diplomacy and it's not just about being in the politics. It's about being diplomacy for the state of Israel and being in politics for the state of Israel. I, I loved many aspects of politics. Uh, not voting in Knesset at four o'clock in the morning, you know, not being a, in that now time-honored Israeli political institution known as the filibuster. We have filibusters <laughs> at four o'clock. Impress your friends at cocktail parties. How do you say filibuster in Hebrew? Filibuster. Right. It's service. It's, it's service of the Jewish people. It's service of the Jewish state. It's interacting with the people of this country, which was endlessly fascinating and rewarding. And it, as you see, it didn't interfere with my writing. That transcendent experience of writing every morning only lasts about two or three hours. So if you're getting up at five, it's good. You're, you're right there in Knesset on time for the first, you know, meaningless vote. But there's no contradiction there. Let me ask you one last question. I think a lot of people listening to us, the stories that they hear uh, about Israel, about American Jewish and Israeli relations, about American-Israeli relations, are sort of rooted in, say, the more jagged cliffs of conflict, breakup, we have fights, we have, you know, more and more American Jews moving away from Israel, we have, you know, diplomatic troubles, we have Bibi, we have all these things that keep people on edge. Give us this kind of calm analysis rooted in hope not only from a, from an ambassador and a politician, but but from from a great author that would leave us feeling a little bit better. One thing I learned as a uh, diplomat is that the events and, and issues that we think of monumental shrink appreciably for the passage of time. History is very humbling at the end of the day, and yes, there are there appear to be immense issues in in relationship between Israel, American Jewry, world Jewry. I take them very very personally and fought for them while I was in government. But taking a step back whether it's the 35,000 foot or 72 year or 2,000 or 3,000 year view, we're living in a, a period where we should be profoundly grateful to be alive today. 
where we actually have a Jewish state to complain about, where the Jews of the world, throughout the world, are free. And I remember when, when a large segment of the Jewish population of the world was not free. And it was inconceivable to us that someday they would be free. These are things which cannot be taken for granted. And in a way, the criticism, the tensions, the disagreements are a kind of a blessing that we are actually privileged to be able to live in a time where we can afford to have these things because so many generations before us did not enjoy that privilege. I love it. This is the quintessential Jewish blessing. May you be privileged enough to live in a time of many, many arguments. It's the opposite of the, of the Chinese, right? We're living in very <laughs> exactly. interesting times. Exactly right. The new collection is The Night Archer. Go and read it. Michael Oren, thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you so much, The L. Tada. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. You may not like this new mailbox song, but we haven't heard from you in so long. So we thought we'd get your attention, shine a light. Come on, pick up your pen and write. To the mailbox. Sometimes we play voicemails from people who hate us and want to tell us what we get wrong. And sometimes we just play stuff from people who think we did a swell old job. Here's one of those. Hi, Unorthodox. 
Beth. This is Estra Grant from Cleveland. I'm just calling because I finished listening to your latest episode with Holly Huffnagel, and it just made me feel so good. She is such a wonderful person, and I'm so glad that she is in the role that she is. And just from personal experience, some of my closest friends in my lifetime have been evangelical Christians, and I found them to be good people who care about Jews and about Israel without any ulterior motives. So I'm not surprised about her background, and I think she's a wonderful fit. Um, My favorite line was when she said that Sunday is my Shabbat. (laughs) I just love that. And thank you for interviewing her. Okay, so if I get it right, she's basically calling in to say, yeah, some of my favorite people are actually not Jews. I really wish I knew more. I know. Those Christians to find them are so nice. Where do they hang out? I would love to befriend some, but like, (laughs) I don't know any. I think the only thing that can follow up a letter that sweet and kind and cheery is this voicemail. Hi, Unorthodox. This is Matt Saunders calling from Seattle, Washington. Uh, My 5781 resolution is to get better at making phone calls. I am a notoriously bad phone talker, and I think it is time that I get better at it. What better way to start than by making a call to the Unorthodox voicemail box to get things rolling? Shana Tava. Thanks. Okay, so basically, this guy's New Year's resolution for Jewish Year 5781 is to make more phone calls, and he's and calling he's us it. <laughs> just to practice. Like, he's just calling. By the way, the perfect phone call where you don't have to talk to anyone. <laughs> he's starting it now. It's, it's, it's the perfect, like, Talmudic loophole. It's it counts genius. as a phone call. That's right. It's like I he's upping it. his game, but don't you feel like Hashem is actually calling on him to call numbers where a human might pick up? No. No, There's no higher said, calling like, this, than calling unorthodox. This is the Talmudic genius of it because no one actually said that a call constitutes actually talking to another person. A call, according to Rabbi Ami and Rabbi Asi, is actually just picking up the phone and calling. <laughs> it doesn't follow that there has to be a human according on the According to other. Rabbi A's TNT. Right. <laughs> if you'd like to be one of those people who calls us and, hey, doesn't have to talk to us, just leaves a message. Call 914-570-4869. Again, 914-570-4869. You could also write to us. We are at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Our Gentile of the Week this week, he assures us that he's not a Jew, though you wouldn't necessarily know because he's funny. So we'll get to the bottom of that is P.J. O'Rourke. He's the author of 20 books now, and his latest is A Cry from the Far Middle, Dispatches from a Divided Land. Hello, P.J. Hello, (laughs) Mark. I have to say that my P.J. O'Rourke experience goes back to high school when I regularly read him in Rolling Stone. And then after college, I briefly worked as a fact checker at Rolling Stone, and they handed me one of your pieces. And what I remember was it seemed to have been typed on a typewriter. This would have been circa 1996. That's about right. (laughs) It wasn't that long ago that I finally gave up typing on an IBM Selectric. I I own three of them. And the problem is that I live way out in the country in New Hampshire. The last person who knew how to repair one died years ago. (laughs) 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 Kicking and biting have been dragged into the 21st century. So you are one of the great American humorists, but this is a country that doesn't produce a lot of humorists, unlike England. Right. Low bar. (laughs) It's a pretty low bar. I mean, I'm thinking what it takes to be one of the great American humorists is that you're willing to try. Well, I think what it takes is less and less. (laughs) And especially if you're a supposedly conservative humorist, you know, people say, well, you're the only conservative humorist. And I said, only intentional. 
<laughs> Actually, lots of laughs out there. So, okay. So the first thing I would do is establish that if you're going to be a Gentile of the Week, you are, in fact, as far as you know, you're not at all Jewish. Patrick O'Rourke? No. <laughs> you know, but then your mom was Esther Friedman. <laughs> no, mom was uh, I'm an actually half wasp. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, me too. So there are some funny conservatives. You know, liberals like to say there are no funny conservatives. And what we mean is we don't meet any. We don't meet any in the Saturday Night Live writer's room or the the Hollywood writer's rooms or on the stand-up circuit. But you're funny. I mean, Andrew Ferguson is funny. Matt Labash is funny. They're funny guys. Christopher Buckley. Yeah, though Christopher Buckley voted for Obama. And now you're writing a book saying, you know, a cry from the far middle. Well, I voted for Hillary. (laughs) So, I mean, let's talk about this a little bit. I mean, two questions, I guess. You know, number one, what about that old story that comedy is a liberal game? And then number two, for those of you who are conservative humorists, why are so many of you voting for Democrats? Well, to take the first question, performance comedy is liberal. The liberal message is that we're all good deep down inside and that lots of good things can be done for us without there being, you know, any bad side effects, really, that the liberal agenda is hopelessly optimistic. Now, when you're performing in front of a bunch of people, you have to be hopelessly optimistic. I mean, you have to be hopelessly optimistic just to take that mic in hand. What a scary thing to do. Right. So it isn't really that comedy is liberal. It's that show business is liberal by its nature. It wants to be warm and friendly. The conservative's message is not warm and friendly. The conservative message is, whoa, 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 watch out. (laughs) (laughs) Bad things have happened before. Bad things can happen again. You know, be careful what you wish for. You know, no, no more tears shed over answered prayers than over any others. And so that doesn't warm up the audience. So if you're someone of a humorist bent and also of a conservative political bent or a conservative anthropology, you think mankind's not that good or that stuff can go really, really wrong. No, I I believe in original sin. (laughs) Then the only career path is sort of, you know, writing wryly subversive essays for glossy magazines when they existed. Yes, and books, it is to be hoped, because readers are not hopelessly optimistic. There's something about sitting down with a book, especially if you're sitting down with a book with a drink after a long day, that's sort of inherently pessimistic. It was an awful day and reading is hard. And, you know, the message in most good literature or or good journalism is not that hopeful. And so you've got them in the right mood. You know, you're not trying to like jolly up somebody's 50th wedding anniversary crowd. Right. It's interesting when I think about some very funny writers of the past, if you think of, you know, an Evelyn Waugh, for example, or a a P.G. Woodhouse my hunch is they would have been terrible performers. They were harumphers. Yes. They, they, you picture them kind of muttering out of the side of their mouths yeah. at best. Jonathan Swift would have been terrible stand-up. You really wouldn't want to see that. And men who, it seems to me, would all be on the cover of Cigar Aficionado. You, know, you all write about enjoying a good drink and fly fishing and, and cigars. There's a kind of like Tory machismo to the work you're all doing. Am I onto something? There's a kind of like mood to it. Yeah, I suppose there is a kind of, um, I don't know if it's machismo. I would say it was male fatalism as opposed to female hope. Okay. You know, I mean, <laughs> it's kind of like the way your dad views you versus the way your mom views you, you know. 
in your mom's eyes, you know, there's always hope. Right. right. <laughs> Dad's going, forget about it. <laughs> Dad's saying maybe he'll get there someday. Maybe he'll make something of himself someday. So the new book, A Cry from the Far Middle, I mean, that's as somebody whose brand has been conservative humorist. And I would have said libertarian humorist. Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, you basically, the mood was leave me alone so that I can take the money I've saved with my tax break and buy whiskey. Well, that, there's that. But it's also leave me alone so that I can leave you alone. And now you're writing a book preaching the virtues of centrism. Yeah. Have you left the party or has the party left you? What's going on there, PJ? (laughs) I don't know what's going on. What I do know is that government is a mechanism. It's a piece of machinery. And what do we want from a piece of machinery is we want the optimal production at minimal expense and energy. You know, as to what the machine produces, let's put that argument aside for a moment. Let's just remember it's a machine. We want it to work well. We want it to work efficiently. We don't want it to cost the earth. We don't want it to explode. We don't, you know. And then we can argue about like what size our health benefits should be or so. And, you know, I remain a conservative in the sense that I'm the guy if the the machine is supposed to produce free haircuts for everybody. Well, that's nice, you know. (laughs) Is it A, necessary? Is it B, cost effective? You know, is it not going to have other problems? Uh, One of the politicians that I have met, and there aren't a bunch, whom I really, really admired was uh, Jim Bunning. He was the senator from Kentucky. When I first met him, he was representative from Kentucky. He'd been a baseball player, right? Absolutely. Pitched a perfect game for the Cincinnati Reds. Yeah. And he was just a great guy. And he's also like just really honest. I was in his office one day and a delegation of fire chiefs come in, you know, and they've got all sorts of fire chief type legislation that they wanted. And he listened to them patiently and politely. And at the end of it, he said, Gentlemen, I would love to make America completely fireproof, but just just a little bit beyond my remit as a congressman. And, you know, he had that, that, that kind of honesty about what can be done and what can't be done. And the idea is that liberals think they can make America fireproof. Well, you know, some of them do. You know, I mean, there have always been, you know, people like Pat Moynihan when he was at his best, with whom you could have a good, solid argument about how much should we do of what and what are the likely unintended side effects of this to be. And in many ways, the fundamental liberal conservative argument is a quantitative argument. We all want the best for everybody, but how do you go about getting the best for everybody? And when should you leave them alone? When should you encourage them? When should you forbid them? You know, when should you subsidize them? And, you know, at the moment, the state of American politics at the moment is one that just cries out for, like, shut up, you know, I, I just, this is just stupid. <laughs> you know? I mean, everybody go back to their corner and you can come out <laughs> swinging later. You know? So why'd you vote for Hillary? I felt like I had to. I live in a swing state. I live in New Hampshire. It was touch and go whether New Hampshire would go for Trump or for Hillary. And I thought, gosh, this is actually one of those odd moments when your individual vote might actually count. It's not like I was living in an all blue or an all red state where it was a foregone conclusion. And I thought to myself, do we go with the known evil? Or do we go with the unknown evil, you know? (laughs) Secretary Senator Clinton was the known evil to you. Yeah. We'd had eight years of Obama, a guy who seems like perfectly nice person, very intelligent person, you know, well-meaning and all that. And not, I disagree with him about all sorts of stuff. And I don't think he did a very great job, but we survived, you know, 
And I figured with four or eight years of Hillary, we'd survive that too. It wouldn't be disastrous. Whereas with Trump, you just didn't know what you were going to get. Well, now we do. <laughs> now we do. Yeah. We found out. We found out. <laughs> okay. But we're dodging the question here, which is that that you're now making an argument for centrism. You seem, I mean, you're a guy, you really dug Ronald Reagan. Yeah. But then you're not enamored of the Republican Party today. Well, I've never been enamored of the Republican Party per se. Yeah. But you know what I'm asking, Pete. Yeah, can yeah. I call you Pete? Yeah, you Pige, can. Yeah. You know what I'm asking, which is you seem to feel that conservatism is less attractive to you now than it was then. So why? What happened? Well, what happened was like crazy people got involved. I think I can fairly say on both sides, but like my side got extra double crazy. I blame Mitch McConnell for everything. Will you join me in that? No, I I probably wouldn't go quite that far, but yeah, I I see your point. (laughs) Who can I be angry with? Who should, who should, who do you blame? Well, just be angry with everybody. If I'm angry at everyone, 95% of them deserved it. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. What I liked about the book, A Cry from the Far Middle, is that it places, it really is a socialist tract. I mean, you would do AOC proud. For example, you want to abolish all the poverty fighting agencies and just cut checks to poor people. Yeah. This is part of your efficiency program? The machine should just work efficiently? Well, you know, when we talk about efficiency, we're always talking about a comparative efficiency. So I looked up what we spend on poverty programs, direct poverty programs. I left out healthcare. That's a separate question. All people of all economic strata get sick. (laughs) So we're going to leave out healthcare. And I just looked at the benefits, you know, the monetary benefits and the SNAP program and all the other benefits. And I put together all the benefits that we give to poor people and found out that it equaled more money than it would take to make those people unpoor. That if you just gave them the money, they wouldn't be poor. Is this a fair system? No. Is it an efficient system? Only compared to what we've got now. But I mean, the fact of the matter is we're worried about poverty in the United States. We're spending an enormous amount to cure poverty in the United States, and yet poverty abides. Why not just like clear out all the bureaucrats, all the middle people, all the form filling, all the uh, government bump, and just give them the money? You know, I mean, the outcome can't be worse. I'm actually with you there. I think that's, you know, someone might even call it a, a universal basic income. Yeah. I, I, the only reason I wouldn't go for a universal basic income <laughs> is because I was once 21. And you know what you would have done with your... I know exactly (laughs) what I would have done with... And we don't even need to go into it. But, you know, up in smoke would be a phrase. It is uh, the writer Jeff Dyer, whom you probably know. He has a great essay about being sort of young and in your 20s and on the dole in England. And just, you know, how delightful it was that you could just... (laughs) I'm sure I would have had a very good time, too. Just hang out. I mean, mean, Americans have that. It's called their parents' house. Yes, exactly. I would have been living, metaphorically living in my parents' (laughs) house right down to the present day, assuming that I lived that long. So your answer for the poor is, you know, give them the money. And your answer for the rich, I found particularly uncomfortable not that I'm rich, but for those of us in the 5% or 10% or whatever, you basically say, stop dressing like slobs. That rich people used to, part of the penalty used to pay was you had to wear starched clothes. Mark, where's your collared shirt? (laughs) You caught me out. (laughs) Yeah. See, the thing about rich people, and I think it prevented a lot of resentment. I mean, there there have been times in the United States, most times actually, where the divide between the rich and the poor was greater than it is now. Not just in mere cash terms, but in terms of like how they lived. 
was much greater. I mean, there was a much larger preponderance of much poorer people. And the people who were were rich were rich, like, you know, with a staff of 60. I mean, you know, they're rich in a way that we've only got maybe three people that are that rich left. They were carried in rickshaws. Exactly. Up, up, to, up the stairs. You know, <laughs> from their bed to the bathroom, they were carried in rickshaws. But one of the things that kept us from hating them as much as we might have, we probably hated them a bit, you know, but it was that they always looked so damn uncomfortable. They were always completely dressed up, you know. I mean, Google Edith Wharton, you know, I mean, she's got, she has 900 pounds of clothes on. And the stuff that they did for fun, like getting, you know, getting drenched in yacht races and breaking their neck playing polo, who even wanted to do that? You know? Where was the polka band? You know, where was the beer keg? You know, and then all the forms of enjoyment that they had, every one of them had a particular uniform that you had to wear to have that kind of enjoyment. You know, you didn't want to show up at the yacht race in your golf clothes. You didn't want to show up on the lawn tennis court. You know, I mean, imagine playing tennis and skirts dragging on the ground. Or those long white wool pants that the men had to wear. Yeah, no, I, exactly. I agree. You know? Look, every time I watch Downton Abbey, I think it doesn't look like any fun having to leave an hour to get dressed before dinner. No, and, and then what you can't see on Downton Abbey is that they itch. (laughs) (laughs) So your theory was basically that the sheer obvious visible misery of the upper classes kept class resentment at bay a little bit because at least poor people, at least poor people got to drink and play fun sports and wear comfortable clothes. Right. And, and the top hat, the top hat was just a marvelous target for, you know, snowballs and beer cans and stones and stuff, you know? So, I mean, I think Bezos, you know, and Gates and... uh, Well, Zuckerberg, I mean, Zuckerberg dresses more comfortably than the rest of us do. That's, it's almost as if he's spitting in our faces. Yes. I mean, the next thing we know, he's going to be running around naked, you know? Put some clothes on. All right. Well, clearly you've solved all the problems in your book. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about Jews a little bit. So you're half Catholic, you're half wasp. Yeah. One of our ethnic chauvinisms is that Jews are funny people. Have you found this to be true? Have you ever suffered prejudice or uh, career handicaps by being a Gentile? What's your What's your experience of my people been? Well, to answer the last question first, no. And one of the reasons for that is that I got my start at the National Lampoon, which was about as waspy as you can get. You know, I mean, it was started by all these kids from Harvard. Were there Jewish writers for the National Lampoon? Absolutely. You know, but was it a, a Jewish-friendly environment? Mm, you know, not particularly. Was it Jew hostile? I mean, was there anti-Semitism at National Lampoon? There was no overt anti-Semitism, <laughs> but you know, there was. It was Harvard. You know, I mean, it was like you guys were the Asians of the day, you know? I see. <laughs> All of you qualified to go, hardly any of you allowed in, you know? Just, just the general atmosphere. <laughs> I suppose maybe when I went out to Hollywood briefly, but there were so many things I didn't like about Hollywood, you know, being a goy was like so far down the list, you know? I mean, it, right. it was, you know, it was, it's just a strange, for a writer, it's, you know, it's the Polish actress, who, you know, who comes to Hollywood and sleeps with the writers, you know? I mean, right, right. So, a really low status job out there. I think we can allow that Polish joke on the air because nobody makes Polish jokes anymore. They don't. They don't. It's actually just, it's just a retro, it's a chestnut of a time when I think I was explaining 
to my children. I was going to some young person. I know I was talking about Jap jokes, Jewish American princess jokes. Right. And I was talking about a book of dirty, of, it was truly tasteless jokes. I don't know if you remember that book that was. Oh yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You could get it Walden books, more truly tasteless jokes. And I was explaining there were these categories of uh, divided by mm-hmm. categories. So, I and mean, they were horrible, right? It was, mm-hmm. it was jokes about handicapped people, jokes about black people. And then there was Jewish American princess jokes. And then there were Polish jokes. And whoever I was explaining this to said, what's funny about Polish people? And I said, well, the joke was, and obviously it's wrong and bigoted and stupid, but the joke was that they were stupid. And that was an American thing. And just as, you know, in Hungary, they think the Romanians are stupid. In Romania, they think the- Every country's got them. Right. Every country's got them. And we had Polish jokes for a while. Yeah. And I thought, I don't think that's a thing anymore. No, and it was a big thing up till about maybe 40 years ago or something. I know this. My high school girlfriend was Connie Nowakowski. But what's interesting is if you go around to different ethnic groups in the United States, often Eastern European ethnic groups, the jokes switch so that like in Chicago, the jokes were about people from Bohemia. Bohunks, as they were known. Oh. They were ex- identical to Polish jokes. And, and you're right, you know, the, the, the Russians will tell them about, you know, the people from the old Soviet republics, uh, the Romanians will tell them about gypsies, you know, the, right, uh, right. You know, the Serbs tell them about Bosnians and so on. Oh, actually, oh, the Lebanese tell them about Syrians. <laughs> exactly the same jokes. When I was covering the Lebanese Civil War, the Lebanese had all these Syrian jokes that were exactly the same format as the Polish jokes. I want to thank you for making war funny. When I was first reading you, I remember, you know, you you would send those dispatches back from places like Lebanon and places where they were in civil war. And you showed that there's no tension between laughing at something and honoring the people. You weren't insulting them to laugh at the absurdity of their situation. You, I mean, today everyone thinks that if you find humor in anything, you must be demeaning people's suffering. Yes. But that's, yeah. well, that's not know. right. No, it's not. I mean, I, I, I spent like 20 years of my life covering human folly. I didn't never covered volcanic eruptions. I never covered mudslides. I never covered diphtheria outbreaks. I was looking for things, bad things that people caused themselves to have happen. You know, Lebanon was the perfect example. Here you got the Switzerland or the Middle East and you just blow it to bits, you know. In fact, the Middle East was my absolute favorite beat because it was just, you know, I mean, the absurdity of the thing was, this is a joke, incidentally, that Arabs tell about themselves and Israelis tell about themselves. The same joke. Put three blank. Israelis or Arabs. <laughs> Israelis will say, put two Israelis in a room, you'll get three political parties. And the Arabs have exactly the same joke about themselves. You know, put two Arabs in a room and you'll have three sects of Islam, you know, or three, you know, right. three different dictators to support or three different kinds of terrorists. But could we be laughing about, I feel like nobody has found a way to make the current moment funny of COVID, of George Floyd, of Black Lives Matter, of, of Trump. Does the current moment actually defeat humor or are we just being too chicken to find the jokes in it? Ah, a little bit of both. I mean, actually, you know, the, some of this stuff is no joke. You know? However, that doesn't mean that I couldn't have gotten into like the occupied zone in, in, in Seattle and had a lot of fun you know, inside there. So, no, we're, we're not trying. But you do have to look for human folly as opposed to like human tragedy. Right, right. So, you know, maybe we should end here. Are Jews funny? Yeah, they're really good at it. They're, they're really good at it. And as are, as a matter of fact, the Irish. 
I mean, I come on my father's side from a great big Irish family. He was like one of eight. His dad was one of 10. And all emotions. I mean, it would take something as grave as the funeral of a child before they would stop kidding. You know, <laughs> all emotions were expressed through teasing and jokes and so on. Love, annoyance, hate, disappointment, you know, uh, pride. Anything like that between two members of the O'Rourke family was expressed in some kind of joke. So it's not, it's different. I mean, the technique is different. But I love reading The Joy of Yiddish uh -huh. for the comparative aspect between the, well, it wouldn't be The Joy of Irish. It'd be The Drunk of Irish, <laughs> The Joy of Yiddish, <laughs> The Drunk of Irish. And I think some cultures are more like that than others. My wife's half German. Not the funniest people. <laughs> 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 Sorry, they're not. I have some Swiss friends. I love them dearly, but hilarious they aren't. <laughs> you know, Robin Williams used to have a joke about that. And I was on this German talk show, and this woman said to me, why do you think there's not so much comedy in Germany? And I said, did you ever think you killed all the funny people? <laughs> she didn't bat an eyelash. She just went, no. <laughs> At that point, even God's going, do you get it? <laughs> Good for Robin. My wife Tina and I were in, in Sweden and we were in Stockholm and it's a very nice hotel. It was right on the waterfront and there was a crane outside the hotel. And you know, the Swedes are very Swedish and everything in that city works, you know. And, of course. Yeah. And we're, we were standing outside and all of a sudden the crane just toppled over and it landed smack on top of a hot dog stand, which it being the middle of winter, nobody was in, you know, so nobody was hurt or anything, you know, it was just so dyserectile, as it were, I just burst out laughing, as did my wife, because she's half Irish. <laughs> and we look around, and none of the Swedes are laughing. I said, that crane just fell down and smacked the empty hot dog stand. It was kind of funny, wasn't it? And one of them said, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was kind of funny. <laughs> right. You know, you're not a funny people when instead of laughing, you say that was very funny. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that sort of... That's what the guys from Harvard would say to those of us who were not from Harvard at the National Lampoon when we were trying to come up with cover ideas and stuff. So you didn't go to Harvard, but you wrote, where did you go to school? Do you go to college? Yeah, Miami of Ohio. Oh, the other Miami. The other Miami. Right. <laughs> the Miami with the bad weather. <laughs> the Miami with the bad weather. The one where you can't make major in water skiing. <laughs> right. So leave us with some recommendations. I mean, we're going to start with a cry from the far middle, dispatches from a divided land. What else is funny? What else are, should we read if we actually want to laugh? Chris Buckley's got a good new one out called Make Russia Great Again, which is kind of a, a reprise of his, uh, you know, his, his first novel was The White House Mess about the Reagan era. His current one is about the current era. So that, that would be first on my list. Max Beerbaum. His little essays, he's got one about kind of a take on one of those books that tell you how to write letters. It's called How Shall I Word It, where the, the letters you'd really like to write. <laughs> it is, might be one of the funniest things in the English language. I will check it out. PJ O'Rourke, he has a new goatee. I'm just not shaving. You know? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, the book is A Cry from the Far Middle, Dispatches from a Divided Land. Thank you for being a first-time Gentile of the Week. I hope you'll come back. Well, Mark, you didn't ask me the question I had about Judaism. You're right. I, I got so lost in my own curiosity that I forgot to honor your curiosity. Is there anything that I, as an internationally certified authority on Judaism, can answer for you? Does the God of the Old Testament have a sense of humor? Oh, yeah. I mean golden calf of all things. And there's a donkey that gets swallowed up. And let me ask you something. I'd be truthful. Have you, have you read the Old Testament? Oh, yeah. All of it. Eh, I suppose over the years, I, I think there were some begots I, uh, I skipped. No, no, no. See, you have to go deep in, go past the Pentateuch. You get to like talking animals and witchcraft, you know. I mean, see, I think I, I, I my feeling was the answer was yes. On this basis alone, that I was created in God's image, and then I look in the mirror. And look at you. Obviously, God was kidding about that. <laughs> the question is, you know, I mean, were we chosen? Hell yeah, but chosen for what? <laughs> I mean, you know, what's it they say, the Big Lebowski? Like 3,000 years of tradition from Moses to Sandy Koufax, but also a lot of suffering and, you know, incineration and stuff. Uh, yeah. And- do you drink as much as you make it out to be that you drink in your writing? No one drinks that much. <laughs> no, of course not. I'm almost 73. <laughs> I get two cocktails in the evening. I'm out of it. <laughs> it's ready for bed. That's a big night for me, though. Yeah. Thank you so much for being our Gentile of the Week. We will have you back if you will come back. I would love to. I would love to. This was very fun, Mark. Thank you so much. Mazeltovs. Leo, do you have a Mazeltov? And what a Mazeltov I have. It's your beloved editor, Robert Scarmuccia, whose birthday it is this week. So Mazeltov to you, Robert. And thank you for so frequently saving us from ourselves. A big mazel tov to friend of the show and occasional unorthodox contributor, Skylar Inman, who recently got engaged. Uh, we were so excited to see that news. We're so excited to be invited to the wedding, too. Like, I know she got engaged well, to, to an Israeli man. So, Skylar, listen, we're going to set up a hotline if, if you need to talk <laughs> before you take the step. There's a lot, of, a lot of things about my people that are really wonderful, but I, I do think, you know, some, you know, some training may be required here, some advice, <laughs> some straight talk. Give us a call. We'll chat. Yeah. In fact, here's our number, 914-570-4869. Let us know what you feel you need, Liel, to tell you about your future husband. I could not be happier for Skylar, whom I've known for a number of years and who's simply She's a wonderful, best. a wonderful, wonderful human being. Rock on. Speaking of wonderful human beings, the world just got another one. It's the new baby born to friend of the show. Gabrielle Savitt-Woods, and really good friend of the show, Livia Savitt-Woods. They had a new baby girl born in Springfield, Illinois. And I was not sure exactly how to pronounce this child's middle name. I knew the first name was Amalia. And so I said to Gavi, why don't you call in and make sure I don't get this wrong? So here's what he had to say. Her name is Amalia Osk Savitt-Woods. Uh, we're calling her Molly. Yay! To all four Savit Woodses, and especially the dog Yitz, who is the most protective, loving pooch ever, and now has somebody new to protect, we send you a big unorthodox Mazel Tov. This Mazel Tov comes in from Leah Jorgensen to Liz Davidson. Leah writes, 
I became a Jew on August 12th when the mikvah finally opened up after quarantine. And I married the love of my life, Liz, on Sunday, August 23rd. It was our third scheduled date, but it was a lovely socially distant wedding in our synagogue in Houston with 10 people. My maid of honor, my sister who lives in Tasmania, carried around on an iPad on a Zoom call and countless people watching on a live stream. We're currently honeymooning in New Orleans and have managed to avoid Marco, but hoping Laura doesn't get too close to our home. Those are hurricanes. Our theme for this year is flexibility, and we couldn't be happier being together, and we are collecting stories. So first of all, Leah, mazel tov, welcome home. Liz, mazel tov to you too. But it's so funny because this is like, we managed to avoid Marco, but hoping Laura doesn't get too close to her home. It took me... A second, I was like, are those like uncles? <laughs> like, what are we? I was like, family members, they hope don't make it home for Shoshana. I was like, oh, those are hurricanes. Okay. Oh, you know Uncle Marco. Yeah. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Remember that our donor drive, which seeks not an amount of money, but an amount of donors, is at bit.ly slash unorthodox2020 fundraiser. And go to our website, tabletmag.com, to learn more about our journalism fellowship this fall. Send us your thoughts at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us, 914-570-4869. You can get our newsletter at bit.ly slash unorthodoxpodcast. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sarah Fredman Ada. Our assistant editor is Robert Scaramuccia, who had a birthday. And our artwork is by Esther Werdiger, who's back from maternity leave and whose new baby is doing our illustrations. We're so excited to have Esther back. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton, Rabbinic Supervision, by Rabbi Denise Egger of Congregation Cole Ami in West Hollywood, California. And we come to you once more from the scattered diaspora locations of Tablet Studios. Shalom. Mark Zoomed PJ, uh, and here's the conversation. Mark Zoomed PJ, and they had a great conversation. Zoomed out. out of it. This is Mark. Mark Zoomed him. And here's their conversation. That sounds so. That sounds weird. Sounds so dirty. He and Mark. He and Mark chatted. He and Mark chatted via Zoom. And this is the conversation. And this is their conversation. And this is what he had to say. That was Mark with PJ O'Rourke. His late. Stop laughing. <laughs>